wine is for the spirit what water is for the soul particularly in italy wine is the poetry of the earth were i looking to tenuously justify the use of these quotes to introduce a podcast about the equally tenuously connected worlds of wine and cycling i could tell you that both sentences were pronounced by the first man to complete the giro d'italia of course that would be a lie Mario Soldati was a playwright, novelist, film director, war reporter and TV host, not a professional cyclist. His tour of Italy, in its first incarnation, was catchily named a trip in the Po Valley in search of genuine foods. An Italian saw it, a seminal program in the early history of Italian television, in 1957, in most cases before they had watched the actual Giro. gastronomic voyage was also, though, inspired by the Corsa Rosa, of which he had been a lifelong follower. He even wrote a book about the first campionissimo, Costante Girardengo. He also declared one day that the rider who later inherited that title, Fausto Coppi, ought to be studied by every Italian schoolchild. Soldati died in 1999. Among his many legacies, it is often said he taught Italians about Italy, including through the medium of wine. His more comprehensive road trips far beyond and beneath the Po Valley in 1968, 1970 and 1975 provided the material for a book, Nino Alvino, which is still regarded as one of the holy tomes on the subject. Hence we feel somewhat vindicated in channeling the spirit of Mario Soldati. That is to say, or paraphrase him, that wine is the poetry of the earth and the Giro, an annual recital of this as well as another art form, an audiovisual feast of glinting spokes and whirring wheels across the glorious expanse of Italy. More simply, and finally getting to the point, this year again, we're inviting the wine enthusiasts and wine curious among our listenership to discover and enjoy six wines produced on or close to lands traversed by the Giro. Once more, we have curated our Giro Vagando selection with Greg Andrews and Luciano Girotto of Divine Cellars in London. And you can buy the case on their website at www.divinecellars.com. That is www.divinecellars.com. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Greg and Luciana after our official tasting or degustazione of the wines at the Divine Shop in South London just over a week before I set off for Italy. Before that, two words of warning. One, we strongly urge you to only ever consume wine in moderation. And two, those who find conversation about wine dull, pretentious or totally irrelevant to the brief of a cycling podcast, none of those unreasonable positions, should probably skip ahead in their podcast feed now. Our wine-free, cycling-only race preview is coming later in the week. Meanwhile, it's Chin Chin Salute and a toast to wine, the Giro and Mario Soldati. Well, that concludes the tasting, the official tasting, 2023 cycling podcast, Divine Cellar, Giro Vagando, Degustazione, Buon Giro to all of you. And what a session it was. Um, and what a cracking selection you've picked for us, Greg. I'm joined by Greg Andrews and uh, Luciano Girotto. Luciano, of course, our resident, well, Greg's resident Italian expert. Luciano, you 
were here last year as well. You helped us out last year. We're going to get on to the wines we've chosen in just a minute. But how are, how are you, um, first of all? Really good and really excited to see uh, Giro 23 come, come around, particularly with an Australian victor last year, if my memory's correct. Well, well remember. <laughs> no, particularly. I mean, the Tour de France has always captured my interest, but the, the Giro is definitely on the radar and certainly been so for the last few years or so. And good to see someone else take over from Cadell Evans, really, sort of, yeah, which is too long ago. And you've been in Australia back in literally the, just the back from Australia. Yeah, recently. so just back from Australia, uh, you know, last weekend, sort of researching some more wines, seeing, seeing what else we can pick up, maybe do something for the tour of Australia next year. And <laughs> both of you, before, before we crack on with the usual, as usual, we're going to go in order, we're going to go around the Giro route this year. You're going to tell us what you've selected and why you've selected it. But let's talk a little bit first about the wine industry and Italian wine in the last year. Um, what are the, the sort of main themes last year that you've seen, guys? I mean, a lot of people talking about inflation, cost of living, cost of wine, unfortunately, has gone up, hasn't it? Cost of producing wine has gone up. Um, climate change in Italy last year, I think it was the driest year since 1800, the driest summer. We start also this year as well. So they they got problem already with water. But Luciana, so Rain. to explain a little bit about what that affects, because if you look at just the figures themselves, production, and even if you read stuff about the quality that was produced last year, um, it was still good. It was still decent, and the quantity was still high. Italy is still the highest, um, still the biggest producer of wine in the world, but it makes everything more difficult in the vineyard, doesn't it? Yes, you need to select more uh, in a vineyard, also on the sorting table, and uh, you need to be more hours on, on vineyards and really detect any single uh, grapes that uh, they're not uh, doing, producing fine. And uh, the producer really worry at the moment because really the lack of water determines also the, the, the start of springtime to the flowering buds and uh, and the the vines how can cope during the the vintage and during the the season. And I mentioned the I word inflation. Um, How's it affecting? Well, certainly, uh, you know, with with our latest imports from Italy, we have seen price increases not just from the the producers themselves because of the uh, increased bottle bottle prices. I mean the the cost of glass has increased because of the increasing cost of energy. The cost of transport has also increased because of the you know various increase in fuel prices and so forth. Obviously, with the Ukraine war, that's had an impact. Where I'd probably say, certainly, transport costs have definitely increased about twenty percent, um, which has been which has been pretty brutal. But you know, the glass price, most producers have probably gone up five ten percent you know, in cases because of those additional costs that they have to deal with. So that, that that's all been factored in. And I think in many respects, people will have started to look towards maybe not necessarily drinking French, but maybe sort of being a bit more adventurous and drinking some of the, the newer or lesser known varieties from Italy. And that's where we're starting to see a little more curiosity. You know, Nero de Troia, for example, has been quite possible, you know, quite popular and various other sort of, you know, varieties, particularly a couple we've got, for, one particular one we've got for the, for the case this year. 
people's interest has peaked in terms of where else they can get quality wines from or what else they can get. And I think for us, that's a great challenge to have in terms of being able to introduce something new to people that possibly represents better value than, for example, for lack of a better word, but something like a Barolo or a Nebbiolo, which are still great wines. But because of those inflationary costs, they're now looking towards something a bit more cost-effective, you know, comparably. Um, I have to say then also the our the producer that we import directly from Italy, they really uh, were keen to help us uh, and not to raise too much the price of the wine they were we were taking from them, and uh, lucky enough really we we were really be able to just contain the rising prices. Speaking about other wine trends in the last year or so, um, one that was not one of the main ones, but um, one of us reading about the other day de-alkalized wine um is that a dirty word around here there are none in the case this year and i don't think there will be no. for a while um i i was in mallorca a couple of weeks ago and i went into a quite a fancy sort of agro mart that it was called and i saw a white wine an interesting looking white wine called zero zero and i really should have known that it was de-alkalized and I discovered this and once I'd poured it and once I'd drunk it, I thought, hmm, lacking a bit of acidity, lacking a bit of something, look to the bottle, 0.0. I I think for us, I mean, we've we've certainly, we've come across and we get introduced to a large amount of uh, de-alkalized wines or uh, alcohol-free alternatives. Uh, and from our experience, the big one of the biggest barriers is they're also often so sweet because obviously the sugars aren't fermented out. Uh, so what invariably the it's invariably we send a lot of our a lot of people who are pitching these to us away. But you know, re- Riesling has been a we've got a very good Riesling and a, a very good sparkling Chardonnay that we do from time to time. Uh, but in the main, we struggle to particularly in reds we struggle for the quality you know we feel the quality doesn't measure up or as a replacement to wine so if you want something that's uh without any alcohol i think there are other better options like sparkling tea or other more other herbal or other sort of i suppose vermouth type of alternatives Mm. that do the same thing the difficulty with de-alcoholized wine, in my experience of having drunk one bottle, is that um, you know you want to sip wine, don't you? But yeah. then you find yourself drinking a de-alcoholized wine, and it is it's thirst quenching. It's like a grape juice, and you feel as though you want to sink the whole bottle. Especially when you you know on that particular day, I was dehydrated and yeah. I was thirsty, so I didn't really want to sip it. Yeah, and I think in terms of it, it just feels different from a for me personally. It feels different from a wine. You know, as you say, you want to, you're treating it more as, I, I find I treat it more more as a soft drink almost. Mm. It's thirst quenching. And then if I want something with dinner, I'll probably move on to something else, you know, in terms of, and if I don't want to drink for whatever reason, I'll probably sort of choose one of the, the non-wine alternatives that are available. And there are, you know, we do several, but it's just... I'm quite disappointed with the general level of quality on de-alkalized mm. wine. It just doesn't is feel like really doing, Is anyone guys doing sort of taking half the alcohol out or a, a, a decent percentage of the alcohol out? It seems quite binary. It seems to be de-alkalized or, you know, the full shebang. They may well be doing it, and Luciana may know, but what we find is the it's either all or nothing in some respects. You know, we haven't been introduced to anything that's a mid-strength wine, so to speak. 
what we would probably prefer to do is then hunt out lower out lower alcohol wines that are naturally made, which you know, is uh, around ten percent things like that. And there is uh, a bit of a move in that direction in the wine industry, isn't there? Yeah, counter to climate change, which makes yes. wines more alcoholic. People are more aware of alcohol in the wine, so we got more and more uh, clients that really they want to see how much alcohol is on on the wine. And uh, also, I would say then, since then, it seems that the beer with no alcohol is more uh, um, spot on in terms of quality than wine. Wine is still difficult to find something decent. And I think you're better off you're better off drinking a lower alcohol wine, like some Rieslings we see around 10, 11 percent. One of the wines in the case is only 12 percent. So rather have a glass of you know i'd rather have a glass of that and put the cork in it and come back to it tomorrow and certainly some a lot of the wines we have have the acidity and the structure to to last a day anyway i mean you know it depends on how you're storing it really i mean some of the reds you can probably stretch a bit further but it's for us in terms of a greater trend we haven't found a de-alkalized wine that replaces authentic wine still guessing on fueling not sure what or when to eat and drink on rights that matter Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens. We're 10 minutes in. I didn't envisage us talking about the alcohol alcoholized wine it's very difficult to say i find it very difficult to say um 10 minutes into the podcast so let's crack on um let's get to what the giro uh, refers to as the grande partenza in pescara in, in abruzzo and well you have excelled yourself greg and luciana because i don't think we've ever been this close to the route before i think that the um cantina rapino which is the producer of the first one gira also sounds a bit like giro um I think it might even be on the route or within a few hundred meters of the route on stage two. Stage one finishes about six or seven kilometers from the cantina. Stage two might go past the front door, I think. Now, after about 105 kilometers. Anyway, we've tasted it. Um, Luciana Passerina can mean literally little sparrow in yes. Italian. Yes. Um, Tell us about the wine. Indeed. Um, Passerina... Um takes the name from a little uh, bird and eats the sweetest part of the grapes any now and then when he found the right spot. And um, Emilio, um, the producer, Emilio Rapino, the producer, really uh, want to emphasize one of the native grape varieties of Abruzzo. In this case, the wine is uh, five days with a contact skin while, while fermenting, and then he keeps the wine in a... In concrete containers than tank for two years. So he's not rushing to bottle the wine because he wants to take, uh, the wine takes his time to uh, adjust, to get ready, uh, dress properly, and be present to the public in um, in, in due time. So um, after two years in concrete, he spent another year in bottle, and then he goes to the market. So it's something that is completely um, beautiful um, wine that is relaxed. The wine is beautiful, golden color, and uh, there is the sun in the glass for me. There is beautiful um, 
uh, nose of uh, tropical fruit, a little bit of boxiness as well. So there is a bit of uh, herbal or Mediterranean herbs and uh, it's lightly bitter in the end just to um, probably present the the food that is in the area. Yes, it's fish, but also it's meaty fish, all white meat as well. So um, Emilio told me that they also drink this wine with lamb, hmm. which can be possible. We're in Aristicini <laughs> country, aren't we? Exactly, yes. Where it's uh, lamb kebabs that well, I probably yes. won't be eating any of, but Brian yes. might be. Yeah, you were eating a soul. And you mentioned the colour of this one. This is a characteristic of this grape, isn't it? The sort of it is, yes, very yellow. Yes, colour. although it's you said skin contact. So another buzzword that we've heard a lot in the last couple of years: orange wine. Skin contact wine is is orange wine. Yes, although this isn't. This is more yellow. Isn't yes, it? but Emilio doesn't really want to call it orange. He doesn't want to fit this wine into a pigeonhole. He said, "I like it to do it in this way. I'm not a natural winemaker. My na wine are." as I want them make it. And if you want to define the natural, then I'm natural. But that's it. The wine color is classic from the grape variety. So any Passerina wines is in this color anyway. And Greg, we were saying, we think this is the first uh, skin contact orange wine we certainly is in the uh, podcast case. It feels still dodging the rosé bullet, yes. I'd like to say. Well, with it, you know. Um, but it, it is what the first uh, skin contact white we've used or overtly skin contact white we've used. Uh, and I think, you know, whilst you know, for us in terms of it's just another means of adding texture and complexity to the wine, with particularly in with skin contact wines, you're not, you may not, you don't have to use oak. I mean, some do, uh, but the reality is it's just another tool in the winemaking toolbox that people use to to create texture and create something interesting and we spoke about trends at the beginning of the con this afternoon's conversation S skin contact wines orange wines are a very real trend that we're seeing a lot of people want to explore want to get to understand and want to see more sort of split opinion in the wine industry don't they? i've got friends who work in the wine industry who think it's a load of old hogwash and think that white wine white grapes are not really made they don't really add anything to I de definitely there's there's various schools of thought. I think a lot of uh, our challenge as a retailer is introducing people to the different styles of skin contact wine. So you have a more modest expression, which is probably what we're drinking here, and then you have some of the more uh, aggressive, severe options that can be likened to a cold cup of tea. You know, in terms mm. of their tannic, and they have they have their place depending on what you're eating with. But I think. The consumer, you know, we, we see a lot. Consumers will come in and ask, oh, I want an orange wine. And you kind of, you delve a bit deeper. And Do you guys think it's a fad? Do you think it's something that's going to disappear? And then it's, with, along with small plates in restaurants, I hope they I hope they <laughs> exit stage very soon because they drive. Oh, are opening a Pandora Mad. box at the moment. <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you think, Luciana? Yeah, you, you, Pandora's box in your, a skeptic or? No, no, because the, um, it's divided opinion. Uh, the trend is slightly going down mm. of orange wine. Also, not just for the consumer point of view, but producer point of view, because we saw in the last three years, then the producer, they were 
strongly believer in making just orange wines are not make them anymore. Mm. They're more gentle. They are, say, making wine. They're more, um, in a way, traditional. But they are really understand probably then people now is getting tired, but the wines weren't stable enough. Mm. And they were bottle variation. And for them was a, a damage in the end of image and also sales, I suppose. Yeah. I think I think what we're seeing is in terms of uh, from producers and consumers alike a greater understanding of the category that has been a, it's probably one of the the, uh, the original winemaking techniques. If you think about a lot of wines that were made in Enfora were made as skin contact, whether they would be white or red. So I think as a style, uh, the producers, the consumers are starting to understand a little bit about it. So I think I think as a trend. It's here to remain, but it will become less as a fad. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, in terms but, of people are latching onto it a bit like natural wine, but I think people are starting to understand it more as just getting it, getting to its feet a little bit more. I mean, there's definitely a novelty value, isn't there? When people see the the list of wines comes in the restaurant, they see the red, they see the white, and there's oh, there's another section. There's also a cosmetic element to it. I mean, people are not actually getting a wine that looks. I mean, it doesn't look like an Aperol spritz, not no. quite, but it does, you know, there is an orange hue to it. And I think on a summer's day, in the same way that I think one of the things that makes people drink rosé is they like the look of it in a glass, you know, yeah. uh, a sort of fresh, dewy glass of rosé. And it's the same with orange wine to a certain extent. Yes, yes. Um, I think the, that, he, as Greg said, the um, orange wine, they are here to stay. It just, they will be more refined and more established. And... Uh, not be as a odd category, but just something that we need to add on the red or white or sparkling section. Yes, I agree with you, yes. The Cycling Podcast at the Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. Wine 2, it's quite a long wait until Wine 2. Um, we are going down, Gregor, in the initial selection, there was something from Puglia. But I pulled you up on that, and I said we're not really going to pull you. Um, we're sort of skirting the, the top of it, and the next stage on which we have a wine is stage seven, and the stage starts in Capua, and close to Capua is Benevento, and we've got a wine that hails from, comes from near Benevento, between Capua and Benevento, and it's the Falangina del Sanio. And 2020 Cantina del Taburno. Taburno is a sort of mountain, or it's a mountain massif between Benevento and Capua, where we're starting. We're in Campania still, aren't we, Luciana? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the Sanio, uh, so it's a Falangina the Sanio, the Sanio region, that's so called, it's a region within a region, um, named after the Samnite people, ancient peoples before way before christ but it's for that part of italy and that part of campania has retained that name yes so tell us about the falangina 2020 so falangina is one of the native great variety of campania but um the greek took falangina to us um this falangina in particular comes from a cooperative that is is uh, around the 70s uh from 300 uh conferitors and the falangina is one of the best wine they are making since the beginning uh from ancient vines as well so some falangina vines are more than 100 years old 
The, the soil is volcanic, so fantastic, uh, rich minerality in the wine. But also this wine, uh, as I mentioned on the, the information then, it's not just famous in Campania, but it's really famous all over Italy because people recognize that it's fantastic white wine. can be an easy going, but also rich in a, with flavors and aromas. Um, this one is completely stainless steel, made in stainless steel, so there is very an uncomplicated wine, but with a lot of pear, apple, flintiness, a little bit of minerality, very saline, and uh, long finish. It's an aperitif wine, but also classic combination is spaghetti with revolver. Ah, okay. Even though we're quite a long way inland with it. Oh, yes, yes. We're also in mozzarella country very much here. Yes, um, that's true. Could we? I also we... said a bit of mozzarella pomodoro. Okay, okay let's extend it. <laughs> mozzarella di bufala and, and tomato, definitely. Well, Luciana and Greg, two wines down. We're heading up the, into my favorite part of Italy now, um, into the center towards sort of Umbria, Tuscany, um, Emilia-Romagna. Luciana, you're from the northeast. You're from Friuli. Is that also okay. where your heart is as far as Italy is concerned? Is that if you had to go anywhere in Italy, would it be to the northeast? Uh, northeast, but also Sicily, Campania. Oh, I think I'm going to, to Naples. I've had the Sicily conversation before. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Naples in 15 days, testing wines. Oh, really? Quite happy. <laughs> uh, have either of you two, have you watched the White Lotus uh, hit TV series set in Sicily, the second series? Oh, yeah. It's on oh. my list. If anyone who watches that will want to go to Sicily, however, I would suggest that it gives a slightly distorted perspective of Sicily. It's very beautiful and Sicily can be beautiful. The geography is also completely muddled up in it. In one second, they're in Taormino and they go down to the beach and they and they find themselves in Cefalu and so on and so forth. But watch it by all means. You'll enjoy it, I'm sure. Um, Greg, if you were to go on holiday in Italy, where would you? I'll give you a voucher, Greg, at the end of this I'm, podcast. Like yourself, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Tuscany, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, part of the reason is that, you know, the, the you know, the, Near the, you've got the seaside, and then you can go into the rolling hills, and you just get a real, for me, a real diversity. Well, but Luciana's it is, thumbs are down. It does get damn hot, but that's not a problem. But I'm going to ask Luciana to explain this. But to be now. fair, I haven't been to Sicily yet, so I can't. You know, I haven't I haven't dipped my toe in the waters down there. But for me, sort of Tuscany has been fabulous. I've really enjoyed it. Luciana, what is the not to like about Tuscany? You put me in trouble now. Oh, personally, I think that a bit too noble. Uh, too um, reserved uh, when you are uh, in Campania in Sicily there is the warmth of the people they, how they welcome you then really are it, for me is always been impressive and I feel more at home even if I'm really deeply from the north but uh, I, I'm quite happy to be in the south well, that conveniently brings us on to our Tuscan wine in this year's case. Yes. And um, what well, is called Sincero means sincere. And um, well, you were very sincere there, Luciana, about your um, your views on Tuscany. Um, yes, and now I will be, a, a, you know, uh, on the, <laughs> uh, be arrested on, on the naughty go, list when I go to with this producer. Um, Greg is a producer that we've featured before. We've featured different wines from this producer. Um, this is, um, so we've got the Sincero. It's 70% Sangiovese, very typical for yeah. wines in Tuscany to be, or red wines to be 
predominantly Sangiovese, but it's also got a bit of Cabernet Franc in there, a bit of Cabernet Sauvignon. Tell us about this one. Yes, so part of the reason why I like Tuscany so much is uh, primarily because my good friend Francesco is uh, makes the wines for Co- Cosimo Massini. Sincero is a wine that he he's he's made the 12 years I've known Francesco. Uh, you're lovely, bright, you know, I suppose, blend of uh, Sangiovese and Cabernet Franc. He likes to keep it fresh, but equally sort of because of that, it's got some nice weight to it where you can, you know, it, it's quite versatile at the dinner table, you know, something a bit more meaty, but equally if it has a wine by the glass, it's also had, you know, quite versatile in that respect. Um, I mean, he, they do, you know, Sangiovese is their primary grape where the, he, as we've known from the previous two, as he's, he makes a Chianti, he makes, you know, a 100% Sangiovese in terms of Nicole, which are named after the original owner's children. Francesco, I've always, he always likes to, his expression is to reflect the vintage. He doesn't like to work to a recipe necessarily. He, he'd rather work with the cards he's been dealt with. He does work biodynamically. He does work minimal intervention. Some may say you could perceive this as a natural wine, but that's not his objective. His objective is to make a wine that reflects the vintage and reflects where it's from. And, you know, as a as an area, a San Bignato is, is also well known for its truffles. Once a year in November, they have a truffle festival, uh, which... You know, I, I need to take up his hospitality, you know, and sort of head out there in, in, in November. Um, but, you know, in terms of, again... I'm slightly aggrieved that we haven't been offered any... Of yes, Francesco's well, I think we need to... Yeah, as well. Stage 10, Francesco, if you're listening. Scandiante oh. Viareggio. There's a beautiful part of Tuscany where the winery and the villa have, uh, is based. So... I think I think it's my 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 appreciation of Tuscany is very heavily influenced by uh, by Francesco. So, um, and and certainly San Mignato, where you've got just a, a fabulous, you know, those rolling hills that I mentioned in the first discussion. You know, you you see that see that in spades around San Mignato, and particularly in terms of you've got some, the the wine has its own sort of fabulous imprint, and you're only sort of half an hour forty five minutes from the sea. So that ocean influence does have an influence where they are. And, you know, in terms of it keeps the wine, the wine is slightly fresher. It's not, it's never baked. How does this compare both of you to, well, you mentioned uh, Francesco, there's a Chianti. Yes. Chianti is synonymous with Tuscany. Tuscany is synonymous with Chianti. That's predominantly Sangiovese as well. Yes. Um, with other blends are still allowed, aren't they? Although the, the regulations have been, t- they've not, it's not allowed anymore. The regulations have been tightened up a lot over the years, haven't they? Yeah. Chianti Grand Selezione now ban completely, let's say, international grey varieties, so Cabernet Merlot. So it needs to be 90% of Sangiovese and an addiction of local grey varieties, which are Canaiolo, Mammolo, Malvasia Nera. Is San Forte part of that as well? And it's too precious, and also there are not many people who make San Forte, uh, which is not Sangiovese, it's a completely different grey variety. Or yes, then they discover. We're going to move on. We're going to move on, both of you, to stage 14. And we are going to have a short incursion into Switzerland, which some of my colleagues don't feel particularly enthusiastic about or aren't enthusiastic about because not everyone loves Switzerland um, who covers bike races. I have quite a lot of affection for Switzerland. Um, I lived there for a few months, a few years ago. 
So we're going from Siao, which is in the Valais, which is a big wine producing region in Switzerland. And we're going to back into Lombardy to Castano Magnago. And we are going to come very close to the Piedmont border. Um, if we're not actually in Piedmont right at the end of that stage, and then we go back into Lombardy. But we're going to go pretty close to the winery that produces the next wine, which is a Nebbiolo, so same grape variety as Barolo, which is, of course, the most famous wine from Piedmont. But this is what's called Bocca, and it's made by a gentleman called Davide Carlone. What's it like, Chad? Well, we've just been poured another glass. We've already tasted this once. We're going to taste it again. Tremendous. There's some left in the bottle, so it'll waste not one. I can also say that Luciano recently did a Nebbiolo masterclass, and this featured featured heavily in that in that masterclass. Um, and I I personally think this is, whilst the the contents of this year's Giro d'Italia is you know is very solid. It's the MVP, Greg. Is for me, this is the number one draft choice. Yeah, this is the you know. I I really think this is this is a standout 2012 vintage, but of 2012. I think that's the oldest wine we've ever had. On I think it was 2015 up until um, you know up until this year. So a bit of a find, but uh, but yeah, I'll let Luciana speak more about. It. We were lucky enough to find um, the bottles that we needed on this vintage. Needs to say that 2012 is not the best vintage for the Biolo, but. Um, all vines, high altitude, and the craftsmen of these um, traditional um, winemakers really made possible to have a pleasant wine with fine tannins around also. Um, also, there is um, a little bit of Espolina. There is another native gray variety from that are from Alto Piemonte. Normally, all the, these um, beautiful wines that have been very famous um, between the two wars, and they 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 were really uh, the red wine to drink from Piedmont. Barolo and Barbaresco, yes, they were still there, but not as famous as Bocca, Gemme, Gattinara. Um, again, small winery here, um, very traditional. I think there is the fifth generation. The last one is really taking care of the tradition then they've been all the centuries through all the centuries but also to innovate a bit so they 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 plant new vines in a different way than they used to be they preserve the beautiful landscape because here there are all terraces um and they are cleaning up the vineyards then they've been um reclaimed uh from wood so really they've been this area was a abandoned somehow because was e was easier to go to work in a factory in textile particularly because the water there is w wonderful and the, the area really is very famous for either rice or textile yes yes definitely so this boca has quite an intense color to be nebbiolo predominant beautiful dry rose and a bit of pepperiness because vespolina uh, is round and is ready to be drunk right now. So yes, is an important wine. Um, can hold a little if somebody doesn't want to drink it right now, but I think it's beautiful to enjoy it right now. And it's got that sort of strawberry with leatheriness that you use. Multi-layers, yeah, yeah. Um, the Biolo. Yes, it's a really, um, you find a little bit of tobaccos a bit of um, vegetal note, but also wood when it's wet. Um, 
little bit of uh, cut, um, fresh cut grass, uh, this white strawberry. The, the floral note for me is quite interesting. And as soon as we tested it the first time, we said, we, I want this one for the Giro. Greg, you know, this is right up my alley. We're, you know, no, no more of those tippy-tappy orange and pink. No. No, uh, in part we we did have we did have your taste in mind when we when we chose this particular wine. We wanted we wanted something with serious stuff. with a this bit is of adult. depth. This yeah, is exactly. wine for adults with a bit of depth, so you can keep keep dipping back into the glass. And every time you'll go back and pull out another profile or flavour profile, you'll see something different. And I think you know it it really does offer. I think for the case, really does offer amazing you know amazing quality. Um, with the budget we've, we're working with. And I think, you know, it's definitely for us, I think one of the better wines we've probably put into any of the cases we've done. I mean, we, you know, it's a bit like we stock all the wines and we believe in all of them, but I think this particular one was kind of a gem and an opportunity too good to miss, really. And definitely food-wise, in terms of as we're getting, you know, well, the English summer's not here yet, so definitely... <laughs> Definitely risotto. not here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Definitely, you know, some risotto, some heartier meals that will definitely sit very well. Yeah. Stew, uh, deer, um, steak. But stew then is typical dish from from the, uh, that area. Is is. Luciana, can I ask you a question about? Uh, we mentioned risotto. Yes. And cooking wine. This is a question that a lot of people might have. Um, I make a lot, a lot of risotto, and I often find myself hesitating over what kind of wine to use. Usually, in what well, I love for risotto, right? well, I, yeah, but what kind? Should it be an acidic wine? Should it be a full-bodied wine? Does it really matter? Um, um, it, it does. It does because uh, if you think to use maybe a wine, then you open is smell of cork. For example, you don't use that because the cork you will find it on the risotto in your final test of your risotto. So normally it's quite. I think the the sharpness, the white wine, will be nice. So no full body, no oaky wines, just okay. white, almost neutral white wine. Okay. I think I think one of the bigger factors is if you're not going to drink the wine, why put it into a, a risotto that you're going to eat it? Because those same flavours that you don't like will be persistent in the food you're making. Now. The, particularly I mean, there are limits to that Greg yeah. I shan't be going upstairs after this podcast <laughs> and picking out a bottle of 1982 no. No, for no. my risotto on. No. although although I have heard some horror stories of misselected bottles of wine going into beef bourguignon but uh, but particularly with risotto you can uh, either in terms of the wine can be oxidised that's not a problem but particularly as Lucia so old yeah. a few days so, old so if you've got a bottle of wine that you haven't finished in the fridge yeah that'll work you know, that, that'll certainly work. There's no crime in that. Uh, the, but as Luciana said, if a wine is corked or if a wine is so heinous and you hate the flavour, don't don't use it. You know, I think, um, and you know, you can you can kind you can kind of be, you know, you can be militant about it. But the reality is, if you would never drink the wine, don't cook with it. You know, and I'm not saying necessarily you pick a a Premier Cru Chablis to go in a in a risotto, but equally. You know there needs to be some level of balance there. I think you know you you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily put food that you don't enjoy drinking. You sort of don't enjoy eating. So why put a wine that you don't enjoy drinking? You know. 
but we're going to move on. Um, but I refer to, I mentioned the White Lotus earlier, to reference another hit TV drama. And to paraphrase Logan Roy, this is a wine for serious people, this one, I think. Um, stage 17. We start in Trentino in Pergine Valsugana and we head right down into the Veneto. We're getting close now, Luciano, to your neck of the woods. But this wine is from, well, we talked about the, the wine down in Campania. It's from the, just just to the side of that mountain massive, the Taburno. This is just on the sort of, on the, the, the flank of the a little hill outside Treviso called the Montello, which is famous in cycling because the World Championships in 1985 took place. Well, it went up and down the Montello um, on several occasions. And this wine is from there, the Montello. Um, Nervesa della Battaglia is the village. And the wine itself is called, well, it's the Recantina, uh, Serafini um, Vidotto are the producers and I think Greg it featured last year in our best of case at the end of the year is that right yes or not best of or no, quite the, make the cut case the, the, effectively the end of year case that we do to sort of sum up the various tours um, where we had uh, some runners and right effectively the runners and riders where we were looking at various things that were a possibility well the um, certainly it was very close run we almost put it in the selection last year but it's, it's too good to miss out again I think it's really worth uh, being as part of the full Giro especially with that trend we mentioned about people taking interest in the lesser known great varieties I think this particularly shine, puts a spotlight on that and sort of will hopefully sort of introduce people to something different So the Veneto, the biggest wine producing region in Italy I think Biggest, stereotypically, the biggest drinkers in Italy, <laughs> the Veneti. Um, Veneto in Friuli, Giulia, yeah. yes, you can say that. But it's cold there. It's cold over there. <laughs> we need a cafe corretto in the morning with a bit of grappa. And then we need a, you know, a grappa after lunch <laughs> and after dinner. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about de-alcoholized <laughs> grappa. Um, the, no. Luciana, the, Greg mentioned the grape variety. What is the grape variety? So, Grey Cantina. Ancient grape variety, then they start to make and produce um, the wine uh, with the event of the Philosera, so in the end of the 19th century. Which um, was the great plague in winemaking. Yes, they oh. all the vines yeah. in, in it Europe. It was COVID times a thousand. Exactly. As far as vines were for the vine. Yeah. Uh, Serafini and Vidotto are two friends, then they start in 1985 to create the, this winery. Uh, they study a knowledge school together in Conegliano and, um, and they, um, they start to make this recantina around 10 years ago, just because um, uh, they were looking after somebody else's vine, vineyards and they recognized that there were some vines and they were quite right. Montello is famous to be uh, one of the epicenters for Veneto for Cabernet and Merlot, thanks to the Napoleone invasion. And also because they've got beautiful red soil, so rich in iron. And um, so they, they start to do some experiment and they start to replant these vines and they, they recognize it through uh, also help of the University of Milan. Then was a recantina grape, then was present there 200 years before. And uh, they are making wines and they are really, this particular, their particular type is easy drinking. 
it's medium body, but with it again, lovely sweet tannins. Um, for me, the first time I tested it was a lot of strawberry and, and grass and pepper note. And uh, very joyful. Um, it's very uncomplicated, and that's what they want to make because they normally, they're very, Serafini and Vidotto are famous for the red wines, and they're probably one of the best producers in, uh, in Italy for red wines. Uh, but this one in particular is really an easy going at the moment. Probably the new generation, because Francesco Serafini's son is now taking over part of the winemaking. There will be something more serious, but the wines are still young because they are less than 10 years uh, old, and uh, it's quite an enjoyable wine. Plato pasta, some charcuterie, some cheese, fresh cheese is, I think, the ideal combination. Uh, is full of flavors, an explosion is a basket of fresh berries with a bit of vegetal note underneath. Like it's just a joyful, sweet, uh, as I said, sweet tannins, and uh, it's just really typical product from that area in particular. It's difficult to think of anything that I would compare this to. Um, you said it's quite, it's quite a rare. Uh, well, it's a rare grape variety, but I can't really think of anything I've tasted. But the, the like area really is famous because the one of the invasions that they had was Longobard. So, spe, uh, speed, meat, meat of spiedo. Spiedo, spiedo um, spit roast. Yes. Rotisserie? Yeah, rotisserie. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, rotisserie. And uh, is uh, in every single restaurant, trattoria, osteria that you have, you go in Montello, you will have uh, speed roast. Um, okay, so stage 17 that was, and we're really, well, the race will be decided over the next few days up in, again, Luciano in your home region, Friuli. We've got a penultimate day time trial up this Monte Lussari, or with a, it's going to be an ex extremely steep climb, uh, it should be very exciting, but we're right up in the far northeast corner, and then the race is going to slightly ridiculously, ludicrously go all the way to Rome for one day, the last day of the race for a procession in Rome. And well, this is an opportunity for us at least to drink uh, wine from Lazio, from near Rome. Frascati. Now, I think Frascati, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Frascati has been drunk in the UK, known in the UK for many decades, but has got quite has had quite a bad reputation. And the same when we talked about Lambrusco last year or two years ago. And it's kind of seen as a bit of a nondescript wine, a wine with no real character. However, if what I've read is correct, the producer that you guys have chosen is a producer that has bucked that trend or bucked that preconceived idea that Frascati has nothing to say for itself. This is a producer that's always produce really interesting Frascati. The um, the family purchased um, the property in 1970s and through a long process of study with Attilio Scienza, then he's one of the luminaries of viticulture in Italy and teaching Milan University. So they really study each plot to plant the, each grape variety that was suitable for the for the for the soil. It also they wanted to plant only native grey varieties. So it could be Malvasia, Bellone, um, other white and red grey variety. So they started after probably almost 10, 10 years of search to bottle their own grapes. And uh, I think it's the first time in, in uh, the test 
a real Frascati, a real uh, serious Frascati. And you're right, because Frascati, but not just here. Also in Italy, when you say Frascati, they say, what? And they, we think that Frascati is a wishy-washy, easy, uh, tippy-tappy, uh, commercial, um, pale, uh, white wine. Somebody started to make also uh, sparkling wine from, from uh, Malvasia. But uh, you, we need to remember that um, the Colli Romani are uh, volcanic soil. And there are really fantastic tradition of white wine. And um, Grotta Ferrata is one of the historical village of where you can find a good Frascati. And um, yes, uh, Castel de Paulus, I think, is one of the first producers that I encore on my uh, wine life than was fantastic white wine made of Malvasia Bimini. So tell us, what does it taste like? It's not tippy-tappy, we've established that, but what no. does it taste like? Well, the color is at the moment, uh, is a grayish, pinkish, because really the, the color bit of Malvasia has this type of color. Um, you you find um, floral note again, fresia, you got the white peach, the apricot, the um, vegetal note again here, and the flintiness, because the volcanic soil really gives the home to these um, white um, varieties to make this wine. And also this wine is completely stainless steel, so there is no oak involved. It just round, is uh, fresh enough to, com to combine the ripeness of the white fruit and the floral note. And um, is long, is not an aromatic wine, but it's got its own aromas. And it's very, almost sensual, I would say. I think, you know, we, we haven't, I mean, we talk about Frascati as being the previous generation, you know, I think the previous generation was, you know, I, th I think were subjected to a lot of ordinary mass-produced wines. And almost it takes a generation to get rid of that trend or get rid of that bad vibe. And I think Pinot Grigio certainly suffered it. New Zealand's Sauvignon Blanc is definitely in that tr that territory now where a lot of people will say, I don't do Sauvignon Blanc. You know, and they're meant to, almost mentally scarred by it, really. Uh, and I think it just ta takes almost a generation for people to forget, forget about how bad those wines were. And then it takes something of this quality for people to be re reacquainted, you know, in terms of the market, to be reacquainted with something that actually delivers a lot of joy. Know, I mean, we talk a lot, we have in the past, last year as well, and just now we've talked about, you know, positive sort of innovations changes the way things are being sort of almost rebranded things like lambrusco and frascati luciano what's the thing that still annoys you or what's the thing that grinds your gears at the moment about how italian wine is sold in the uk in particular where you live now is there they then italian wines they should be always cheap no matter the appellation uh no the is acceptable to pay good money for a Barolo Brunello, but the rest of the wines, they need to be cheap, no matter who makes the wine and uh, and the quality. What, why do you say that? Uh, because they, uh, people in general think that uh, uh, because they go in Italy and they have fantastic experience of drinking wine at a very good price, they should, be, should have the same price over here which they don't understand that we got ah, lot of taxes. Yes. Okay, okay. Yes, yes. with a lot of ta taxes, transportation. So people imagine yeah. that Italian 
wine equals cheap wine. Yes. Okay. Yes. I think accessibility is key. I think we, you know, and I, I particularly see it. I mean, and certainly Angus does with Spanish wines. You know, we we certainly respect that there are quality wines. There's no question about that. And obviously, you pay for those. But equally, particularly with new, uh, lesser known varieties and lesser known regions, we want it to be accessible because we want to introduce people to this, and we we want to we want to show people something interesting. And I think. When, when the price is accessible, you get so much more opportunity to do that, you know, in terms of, and especially it then represents a graduation point to say, to then introduce people to something that is a bit more serious or has, has a bit more bottle age or there is a bit more premium to it. But I think if you don't have that accessible footstep, you never get that second opportunity. And I think it's, I think for me, Italy is, Italy just has such an incredible diversity. And I think one of the facts that I, I'm constantly reminded of is the the sheer amount of indigenous unique varieties that you have in Italy is outstrips any other country. It really does. And yes, you have your international varieties that are cab, your Merlot, your Chardonnays that have, for lack of a better word, infiltrated Italy, shall we say. <laughs> but you also have so many fantastic varieties, Norella Mascalese, Recantina, as we've had this, you know, this afternoon, Falangina. There's so so many more stories to tell, and I think that's what you know. I think there's such so much more opportunity. There's a lot more. There's a lot of joy in Italy uh, for because of all those stories. Um, although yes, there are still a bit of misconception about Italian wine. I have to say that we are in a good place at the moment because people is very open to find Boca that they never heard. But you know, if you tell a bit of a story and the, the characteristic of the wine, I, I don't like to describe the technicality of the wine, how the wine is made and how alcohol has or how much uh, acidity has, but more the characteristic of uh, the, who makes the wine and the history of the place where this wine comes from. And I think the people is more fascinating too. And they, they buy almost a, a dream, a, or uh, an experience rather than a liquid, a technical liquid that is into the... Am I right to say, though, that you guys in a small kind of independent um, wine retailer have the luxury and have the ability to do that? It's difficult for supermarkets, for example, where a lot of people, I don't know what percentage of wine is bought at supermarkets in the UK, but it's difficult for a, even Still a... Still 80%. 80%. It's difficult for a big supermarket even to have a Passerino or a... The, 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 if they have Italian wines, they need recognisable kind of brand names. I think you're right in terms of people who, you know, we're lucky in that most of our, you know, I'd say 90, 98% of our customers are, will engage with us curious, talk about yeah. wine and we can introduce to the wine. Uh, supermarkets, you don't have that opportunity because the person serving you doesn't have, that, have the knowledge that we fortunately do. Um, so, yes, that is a different, but in terms of, I suppose I like to think of divine sellers and other independent merchants as we have that capability to introduce our customers to something new. And what we see is we might introduce a customer to, for example, a varietal, and then three years, four years later, the supermarkets have started to incorporate that. And as well, you have 
you know you have fantastic programs you know in terms of that introduce people to food and wine and sort of Stanley Tucci's you know expose on Italy being a fantastic we an hour on what we thought of you. that program I'm not, I wasn't as much of a fan as some other people but anyway no but what we, but what we see is we see we see people seeing something and then asking you know asking for that wine and you know particularly Sicily was a perfect example we had a couple of customers coming in and saying that now you know and asking for a wine that was talked about in the program and you know whether we can debate whether the program was is good or bad but i think certainly for us in terms of it's ignited people's interest in terms of various things you know that, that go on and i think you know, there's other programs as well that do that have done the same well i agree i think well both of you i'm going to thank you for giving us a fantastic tour a uh, fantastic giro before the real giro uh, I feel as though we've been around Italy in the space of a couple of hours and six glasses this afternoon. Greg, I, I've got some bad bad news for you. I don't think the Australians going to win the Giro this year. No, I, I, I must admit, I generally enter most Grand Tours thinking the Australian will yeah. not feature on the podium. But yeah. <laughs> So it was a nice surprise yeah. last year. I'm racking my brains now to think of who might contend you. But um, the, the, there isn't an Australian among the favourites. It's no. probably going to be a Slovenia or a Belgian, I would guess. Yes. Slovenia, after all, are Italians. We really should have, as it, well, do you, have you Just heard about the, there's a big, there's a big controversy about this. Have you heard about the, you're you nodding as though you have, um, there was an Italian, I can't remember, it's not the Italian tourist board, but there was a big agency that produces content for Italian tourist agencies who produced a video a couple of days ago showing off all, you know, great landmarks of Italy but also showing footage, I don't know whether it was drone footage, of a square, typical sort of Italian scene, people drinking aperol, things like that, and it was in Slovenia and not in Italy. Venetian domination was still the yeah. Dalmatia, so and it's quite obvious the landscape is really reminds you to be. Slovenia has made such a mark on professional cycling in the last three or four years and thanks to a couple of riders i'm going to propose that we should have maybe in the tour de france case we should have a slovenian wine have you got any in the shop just reckon we do have it we do have a couple so uh you know and certainly certainly when we're doing the review for the tour de france we should probably have a bottle of slovenian wine just to review a conversation nonetheless um yeah but i mean saying that we've already started sort of crunching the numbers and looking looking at the French road atlas as, as to where, which wines we're going. It seems unfair if you're not going to have a Danish wine because the big protagonist in the Tour de France is going to be a Slovenian and a Dane, I would suggest. And yeah, so... That yeah. might be a de-alcoholised wine. Oh, yeah, no, it's probably... probably uh, although there are a couple of Danish producers, but in terms of... I don't think we'll meet the volumes required, really. No, I can imagine, I can imagine they're fairly priced as well. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, I'm going to thank you, and um, well, we'll be reporting back from Italy over the next three weeks. And I hope everyone at home enjoys the case as much as we've just enjoyed tasting it. So, thanks, Greg, and thanks to thank you to give us the opportunity to show some fantastic variety from Italy. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Byrne. Ci riguardi ti e te ne innamori, nani.